BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. Oh, really talk? Like we're having a conversation. <laughs> I'm going to go to the one-word answers for the podcast, though. Hey, do you know, do you, have <laughs> so you ever met John Grisham? Yes. Really? Yeah, Just, yeah. I've worked with him twice. Yeah, I know. I saw on your in mm-hmm. your... Uh, in your bio, I didn't know that. Missed it. Magnolia oh, okay. or 2929. Uh-huh. Um, One of those. They released uh, the Girlfriend Experience, but we didn't work with them. You know, Brian knows Cuban a little bit through the internet mm-hmm. and stuff they've met or something. But um, yeah, they own that company, but they don't do day-to-day stuff. Uh, I, always, I always wonder what he does day-to-day. Okay, we're, we're ready to go? You all set? I'm all set. Uh I'm here with David Levian. David Levine. Uh, Let's just go right off the top there. <laughs> it's really? spelled Levian. Yeah. I didn't know L-E-V-I-E-N, that. L E V I E N, but it's David Levine. Who decided that? <laughs> I, you know, the rumor has it that it was like an Ellis Island thing, maybe. Uh, and they just like switched the When letters. the relatives were coming through, it it's got like misspelled. And, yeah. But I don't know if that's true. So, so David, we had your uh, writing partner on the podcast a few months ago, uh, Brian Koppelman. You guys have written. So many movies together, um, Rounders, Ocean's 13, uh, one of my favorite movies of all time, Solitary Man, uh, The Illusionist, um, uh, The Girlfriend Experience. Uh, you've worked on TV shows together. You've done a ton of stuff in the movie industry. But I actually want to start off talking about uh, your fiction writing because I didn't know that about you. And it totally surprised me what Brian had to advertise your, your, uh, your, your novels. Cause I didn't know anything about it, but, uh, then I went home and read. Isn't that, isn't that a, a great sign of how good a job the, the book company's marketing department's doing? But, but, but that my partner had to advertise it personally. He has to go hand sell. Okay. But, but let's, but let's get it straight though. Your first novel, um, or your, your first big novel, City of the Sun, how many copies did that sell? Um, you know, I'm not even sure, but between hardcover and paperback, I, you know, I think, uh, over a hundred thousand, the paperback was the bulk of it. So, so that's quite a bit. Like what's the average novel sell? Not many. And not many. right. I think it's like a few hundred say, yeah, yeah. and particularly now that everyone's, you know, publishing and, and so on. And then, so you've written, you've written about six novels altogether now. Um, yeah. The sixth one is, is, uh, just set to come out. And they're they're mostly in the kind of thriller genre, which is different than your movies, right? Like you yeah. have, you haven't yeah. has so so I so I went home and I read City of the Sun after Brian mentioned it, um, and it was great. Uh, and one thing that Brian mentioned, which of course you were sitting there and didn't mention, but you wrote that just on a train. You were commuting into your work, uh, uh, and you know in, on the train ride. You basically, I guess, going there and go, coming back, you wrote the whole novel. Yeah. Well, so for me... And it's like 480 pages. Well, it's a full-length novel. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how many pages it is, but it's the it's the full deal. So, you know, you definitely get your money's worth. For me, the dream was always to um, write and make movies and to write novels. Um, for some reason, that was just in my head ever since I was a young man, long before I knew how I could do it. Um, and through the circuitous route that everybody gets there... I managed to become fortunate enough to have a movie career that was like a real movie career, writing and then directing, even producing movies. Yeah, your first movie was Rounders, right? That was the first screenplay. Brian and I teamed up um, after doing sort of separate careers. We'd been best friends since we were kids. 
um, since we were literally 14, 15 years old. Where are you from originally? Originally from Long Island. Um, we lived a couple towns apart. We met on a student trip one summer. We became best buddies. Um, grew up reading books, passing them back and forth, watching the same movies, listening to the same music, really sort of having a shared um, artistic appreciation or, or pop culture sensibility. And one day, um, Brian had like a successful run in the music business. I had worked in the movie business and low-level jobs. And like, then like what sorts of jobs? After college, I went out to, to Hollywood and started as an assistant to like literary agents at a talent agency. Did that and, help launch the movie career? Like did you build connections there or – because a lot of people think you sort of rise up through like first being an assistant to the assistant to the assistant director and then slowly you, you'll – eventually you'll be Steven Spielberg. Like does that happen right. in reality? Well, or? you know, the, the the plan was, okay, if I work in this business, I'll make these contacts and then – in my spare time, I'll, I'll write the brilliant screenplay and then I'll know exactly who to give it to. <clears throat> but, uh, and I feel like that's everybody's in Hollywood is like that. Well, everybody's writing a screenplay out there. Yeah. You get pretty self-conscious about it. But, you know, one thing that happened, a bunch of things happen when you get out there. First of all, you're young and in your free time, you're not writing as much as you should. You're going out a lot. You're hanging right. out, you're partying. It's a fun place to live. You know, you're a kid. Second of all, the jobs that you get at the entry level are very time consuming. I mean, they overwhelm you. They hand you a stack of 15 scripts every weekend and you're reading a couple every night and you're supposed to be going out meeting people and trying to bring talent into your bosses and do all this stuff because you're purportedly on the job road. Um, and it leaves very little time to do your own stuff and you'll end up <clears throat> giving notes on other people's scripts and wishing that you were the one in their chair when they come into these meetings and wishing you were the one getting hired and doing all this. But giving so many notes on so many scripts, do you think that kind of gave you the ability to write a good script? Yeah, it's like a double-edged sword. I mean, you know, you I read a few thousand scripts in the couple of years I was there. Mm -hmm. So the form and when it's effective and what not to do starts to seep into your bones on a deep level. So that's the positive. The negative is I worked very little on my own stuff then. And I realized that I was meeting some people and they could be influential in my life, but they didn't see me as a writer or creator. They saw me as a guy like them, just like working these jobs and trying to move up. So, uh, you know, pretty soon on after a couple of years out there, I had something of like a mini crisis where I realized my life wasn't going in the direction I wanted it to go. And I needed to do something drastic to change it. And so you sort of felt like, um, you had gotten everything you had gotten, you could get out of the Hollywood, ex working in Hollywood experience. Like, and you felt like it was stuck somehow. I felt very stuck and I felt very miserable because I really was, those jobs were not what I wanted to do. I wanted to write and I wanted to create and I wanted to make movies and books. So I just quit. I just quit. And were you, were you, did it take you a while after you made the decision to quit to actually have the courage to quit? Like, were you afraid of what was going to happen next if you leave the industry? You know, I, I, I think I was just too stupid to even think down that road. I was just like, I'm, I'm drowning here and I got to just get out of this. And I just gave notice on my job. I didn't really have anything else lined up. And I just started feverish, feverishly writing my first novel during the day. And, you know, it was a horrible experience. I didn't know how to do it. And I was filling these pages with just absolute confused garbage. You know, I was just pouring out thoughts and feelings. But eventually, um, I finished a draft of this thing and it was really empowering. I knew that I could do it, even though it was terrible. I knew eventually I could rewrite it. I could move on to the next thing. Um, that book turned out to be my first book. Um, oh, really? It took me several years of rewriting and putting it down and coming back to it. But it was called Wormwood, and it's a, it's sort of a satiric look at, at Hollywood, huh. and and um, you know, I when I when I finally got it published, I felt like in a way, you know, I was getting this huge weight off my chest. And when was that published? That that was I'm, I'm not telling the story in order, but um, by the time that was published, um, I think Rounders was sold. I'm not sure if it was released yet. Okay, so it was probably like six or seven years later. Wow. So, um, so what did you do those six or in seven In the interim, years? I was literally the obscure writer with a bad novel in his drawer trying to write the next thing. And I moved out of um, LA. I moved back to New York. I started bartending. And 
Um, Brian lived in New York also, and he was having, I would say, a very different sort of crisis um, in his job as an exec in the music business, but with very similar intensity. He didn't want to be a musician, but he was trying to foster these artists' careers, and he realized he wanted to be the artistic one, um, you know, not in music, but he wanted to write and make movies. And we finally came together one day, like right around the time when um, his his first kid was born, he came to my bar and, and he was like, I'm freaking out. I got to do something. I want to write a screenplay. I don't know what to write it about. And I don't even know how to do it. And I said- Did you I, try to dissuade him knowing how many screenplays were already being worked on in Hollywood or- No, because he was intelligent enough to not quit his well-paid job and mm-hmm. he was going to do it in a reasonable fashion. So I was like- that sounds cool, man. I've read a thousand of these things. I I'd passed on the few good ones that I'd read to him, um, that I'd read to him over the years. You know, I read an early Tarantino script. I was like, you got to check this out. I got, um, this, was this before for, Tarantino was, was yeah, big? before he became, before any of his movies were out. How did you recognize, um, that that script was a good script? Well, I, you know, no credit to me. It was the most obvious thing in the world. It was just this totally unique voice. And, you know, you read all these horrible derivative scripts all day long, you know, people trying to make um, a 10th generation copy of a bad romantic comedy. And then the original script for Natural Born Killers lands on your desk and you realize, you know, this is a a generational type of voice. Hmm. It was just clear to me. Um, You know, Usual Suspects was another one. I was like, wow, this really is amazingly crafted sent that to Brian. Um, so he comes to me in the bar and he says, I, I realize like my job is strangling me. I'm dying to write a screenplay. I don't know how to do it. I said, you want to write one together? And he said, sure. And we started meeting every morning, like after I'd bartended for the night, when he, right before he would go to work, we'd meet for like two hours a day and we'd start outlining and hashing stuff out. And we had no idea what we were going to write about. We had some general thematics about friendship and about choosing your path in life and um, one night at like three in the morning, my phone rings and it's Brian. And he goes, a guy just took me to an underground poker club. I got cleaned out, lost all my money, but it was amazing. We got to come back tomorrow. You got to see these people, hear the way they talk. It's a whole world. We can make the movie about this. Yeah. And as, as I mentioned to Brian on, when, when he was on my podcast, I, I was hanging out quite a bit at the Mayfair Club Probably right after Rounders came out, I mentioned right. him. And so I knew all those people and, and that club. And uh, Yeah, I love did, – did you actually start going there because of the movie? Yeah, the movie had just I come love, out. I feel like I had a part in corrupting you. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah, totally because what had happened was I had just sold my first company and I was incredibly disillusioned because I didn't want to go to work for somebody, the guy who had bought my company. And I had some extra money for the first time in my life and – I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was unhappily married. So so I was just playing poker. Every, out of the house. I saw, I saw Rounders and I figured out that the club you guys were referring to was like right next to my apartment building. <laughs> right. So I went there and they wouldn't let me in because you had to know somebody. And I sure. didn't know anybody. But I, I said I, – I think I even said – you know, I, I think you're the club that was in Rounders. <laughs> Can you, I'm a good guy. I'm not like the cops or anything. Right. And Ingrid, who, you know, let me in. Sure. And I start. I started playing there every single night. So that's great. Yeah. Ingrid, um, immortalized by Bomka Jansen. In the yeah. Movie. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So, so, um, we did start going to the club every night playing, losing at first, slowly, you know, playing the playing? lowest games. Game? I think I was playing – what was the lowest game? I think one, two. Well, no, no. It was, they had low games. You could play like one, two or oh, really? two, five. When I was there, five, ten, I think 5'10". I think 5'10 might have been the lowest when I was there. Hold them. Yeah. We were starting with the, the smallest stacks we could. I think I was playing like – I was playing stud then. And I think uh, Brian was getting into Hold'em. I, you know, I didn't really know Hold'em. Well, yet. you Started guys had it. popularized Hold'em, I think, around the – you guys are the ones who made Hold'em popular. <laughs> Rounders well, made Hold'em. Yeah, that was the game that everybody was playing. And we realized that was the the exciting game and the game that hadn't been played out in movies yet. So, yeah, because also Stud's a slower game. You know, uh, seven card stud. You have to have seven cards. There's no, there's there's all these cards up. And yeah, yeah and, and the, the possibilities are more limited in a way once a lot of cards have been dealt. And the swings can be bigger when, when, when that board comes across and everybody can get a piece of it. So I think also... With Hold'em, the cards themselves can become the character. 
because you can actually look at the cards and have some sense of what's happening in the emotions of everybody around. Whereas with seven card, it's, it's too much analysis that has to happen. Well, yeah, I think, you know, the, the famed poker face where guys just sitting there like a rock is really fascinating when it comes to, to stud. Um, but in Hold'em, guys use the opposite of that as a technique and, you know, they make a lot more moves, not right. based on the cards. So that's what makes it more interesting from a character standpoint, I right. think. Right. And also there's uh, the the, flop, the kind of communal flop in the center. So you don't have to look at everybody's – it's not like you're looking at everyone's hand. You're looking at just the center of the, yeah, the table. It's less to memorize and then in a way everybody's working with the same thing to a degree so the personalities get involved. So – for for numerous reasons, the fact that that was the game that people were playing No Limit um, is why we chose it for the movie. And, you know, the No Limit scenario was so fascinating to us because it's putting everything on the line. It's like the gunslingers, you know? That was the analogy we always used. Yeah, there's so much psychology and it's also so possible to get so personally and financially devastated in No Limit, which is what happens in the, in your movie. Yeah, and it can happen super quick. And at the Mayfair Club, the during the rare times they would have No Limit games, um, when, when I was going there, because it wasn't as popular then, um, they put a cap on it, how much you could bring to the table. Right. So, okay, well, that makes sense. You know, um, that was before they had the whole card cam on the televised yes. stuff. So they would play like in the middle of the night on ESPN, they would play the finals of the World Series of Poker and it would be edited together and it was like kind of grainy and, and you didn't see the whole card. So you, it was just watching guys sit there and you didn't know what they had until the end. And it was kind of great, but it didn't really put the thing on its feet and make it a spectator sport yet. Um yeah. So it was the two things. It was like whole card cam and our movie sort of like thrust it into, yeah. into the pop culture. So, 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 but I want to ask though, like you said before you had kind of come up with this, um, it's almost like rounders was the vehicle that you then, or poker was the vehicle that you were um, able to place your, your themes around. What were you doing with, how did you decide first come up with the themes and then the story. I think we were just talking about and like sort of scribbling down on legal pads what we were interested in. And we thought, you know, oh, it could be these two guys, they're best friends, but they're torn, you know, they're, they're, um, you know, one guy's sort of trouble for the other guy. And, you know, we came up with this dynamic between the characters and the one guy's sort of searching for the right thing to do. We had this idea that he should be, um, in law school, Brian happened to have done law school. I think he was just finished with night school, hmm. law school. Again, trying to figure out his path and finding out ultimately, even though the law is fascinating, it wasn't the right thing for him. So we were like, well, what if we took this character and, you know, put him in that situation where he was doing this really respectable seeming thing, but in the end it was going to be the wrong thing. So he was going to abandon it. And then, you know, we came across the poker thing. And back then, the dividing line basically between being really good and being a sucker was like if you knew how to play a little bit by the math and if you basically – if you'd read um, Super System, the big Doyle Brunson right. book, if you'd read that in like one or two other books, you would have a huge edge because you would know the starting hands. Most other guys who hadn't read those books just played like almost every hand. So you could become a winning player. So we quickly became winning players. Brian played bigger than, than I did. But I would win in these little games. He started scaling up and, uh, and we were, you know, having this incredible time and we were trying to jot down these lines that guys were saying at night and all this. And we sort of, it was our research period, you know, in air quotes. We spent like a year, maybe more going there almost every night. So you weren't out. writing at this point. We but- were writing in the mornings, but we were trying to sort of collate what we'd had mm. and figure out a structure. But like we were very, we were new at it and we weren't that good at it. So we spent a long time sort of like filling the bucket. And then we came to a certain point and we were like, we'd been doing it for like a year. And we said, okay, like now we can tell ourselves that it's research, but now we're just going to play cards. Like we have what we need. It's time to like sit down, stare this thing in the face and wrestle it to the ground. And we had like two hours a day, basically of free time. And we, we made this outline and we started writing these pages. We went to Brian's office on Columbus day cause it was closed for the holiday. And we wrote like the first 12 pages in a big explosive burst. And, um, and we took it from there. And in three months we had the draft that really resembles the, um, the movie that got made. I mean, there's some changes, but like by and large, we'd written the movie 
And so now's the the part where your question would come in, right? Like, so, so I'd been in Hollywood for a couple of years. Now all my great contacts were going to come to bear, right? But it didn't really happen that way. There were a couple of people who were willing to read it. Nobody really believed in um, a card playing movie. A lot of people were like, it's too sedentary. Nobody will be excited by it, et cetera. Yeah, and even though like The Sting is one of the most popular movies of all time. People would remember the running around and, you know, the crime aspects or something like that. But uh, but it, it kind of all worked together, like your themes about the, the friendship and the relationships that Matt Damon was in. And then combined with sort of the underground seamy aspect of, you know, the poker and the Mayf- you, you know, you made the Mayfair Club a little bit seamier than, than it really is. <laughs> right, and, yeah. uh, and you had like kind of this criminal element involved. Uh, and maybe there was a criminal element at the Mayfair Club, but I never really uh, saw it that way. But um uh, you know, that all kind of fit together really well. Yeah. I mean, we, when we'd finally found it, we loved the idea that a guy was going to abandon a career in law for, for, um, poker. And you made him like us, a superhero yeah, too. It, like, Cause it wasn't gambling. He wasn't going to give it up to be a gambler. Like right. to us, it was like a skill game. So he, that was his profession, um, that he was adopting. And like, you know, a lot of people didn't make that distinction because the life of a professional poker player wasn't so well known then. People didn't realize that like kids coming out of college could become millionaires really quickly. Like as, as they see now, it's all televised. Yeah. Um, well, well, and it's funny too. You really, you, you know, you, you make him like a superhero when he's in law school. So he goes yeah. to like the, the, you know, the game where all the judges are or whatever, and he's analyzing everybody's hand uh, super quickly. Like that, that was almost above and beyond the skills of like the normal, even very good player. Um, but well, we knew that we needed a scene that showed that he was meant to do this, that he and was, was different brilliant. Than the rest. But honestly, like we, we'd seen Phil Helmuth do that hmm. in a poker room. Hmm. So, you know, people say like, oh, that could never happen. But honestly, like I saw Phil go around the table and be like, you're playing this, you're playing that. You did that. So I know you have that. I'm not sure exactly what you have. I think, you know, hmm. one of them's a queen, but you bet it wrong. And we were like, wow, that's incredible. We got to, we got to do something like that. But it was pretty impressive. Um, So, so while, while my contacts didn't yield um, somebody to say like, I'll sell this thing to Hollywood, I did manage through like a, a weird circuitous route to, to get the first 50 pages of my book into the hands of a literary manager. And he said, you know, I think this is a great start to a book. Let me see the rest. I sent it to him. He goes, I really like this. I think I can sell it. I said, okay, that's great. But you know, in the last two weeks when you've been reading that, my buddy and I just finished a screenplay. Um, do you want to read it? He said, sure. We sent him rounders. He read it, called us back the next day and said, I can sell this faster. Hmm. So we said, go for it. And he took it to town and it happened, you know. So usually literary agents don't necessarily, they're not usually the same as the movie agents. Like, did he just happen to have more no, this Yeah, this guy was a literary manager mm-hmm. in California, which is a, you know, it's an extra 10% that most people don't, don't spend. But we couldn't get any traction with the agents. So we went with this guy first and we stayed with him for many years. And, and even after he signed us and before he went out with it, he took our script around to all the agencies and they all passed. They all pass for various reasons. It's overwritten. It's underwritten. I can't understand it. Nobody will be able to understand it. They're just sitting around. And all those places came back to sign us the minute that we'd sold the script. So, you know, a lot of lessons came out of this. One of them being that in a very short amount of time per day, um, if, as long as you stick to it in a very dogged manner, you can end up with a finished piece of work, even a long form piece of work. But what was what's interesting to me, though, is that you spent a short amount of time each day working out ideas and themes and uh, concepts and talking about the dialogue you had heard the night before. But then it was a year later, you said you actually started writing on it. You wrote the first 12 pages. So yeah, that was in I, one day. And then, so if, I, I don't think though, I would have like held off writing for a year. Like I probably would have jumped right into the writing. Like what made you guys decide to kind of hold off on putting pen to paper? It was just an instinct. We knew that we really wanted to become expert in it and it was complicated. The world was complicated and we didn't feel that we had it yet. And 
How did you? I think that's a hard part, though. Like, how did you know? Like, again, people are usually arrogant enough to think that they can just dive right into making the world's best screenplay. Like, how did you know you needed to? Well, I think, you know, I'm sure we we tried some scenes and mm-hmm. tried to build the dialogue exchanges that we'd heard into bigger things, but we didn't know how to implement them yet. We didn't know what the point was. And it just, it gradually took shape. And, it, you know, the time went by quickly. It seems like a year's a long time, but like, you know, as you go day by day. But when you look back... If you could actually write a screenplay that becomes a, a made movie in 15 months, that's actually not very long. It just seems brutal when every day you're toiling in obscurity. Right. Um, but, you know, somehow we just had the faith. We knew that it was entertaining. We were talking about this stuff with each other and we just found it entertaining. And we, we said to ourselves, let's just write this thing so that if everybody else thinks it's horrible, we can go figure out how to make it for 500,000 bucks. And yeah, because it probably wouldn't have been uh, – I mean there's not that many sets in the movie. And like you say, people are sitting around most of the yeah, time. So. It just – it came off on such a bigger scale than we ever imagined. Mm-hmm. And you know, it worked out great. And that led, led to our career in the movie business. I mean we immediately sold a couple of other things on pitches. And then you did, you did Ocean's 13, which you know, that must have been like uh, an enormous – that must have been a payday. In terms of you know you know you're you know it's going to have a huge box office relative to the budget. Uh, you have yeah. huge stars in it. Like was that kind of and it's a sequel of a sequel of a sequel. Well, that, so, that was I mean that was the biggest payday in pretty much every way uh-huh. because, like you said, it was a big Hollywood movie. So they paid us. It was great. We went to to L.A. for the summer with our families. They put us up in great places. The whole thing was amazing. We were hanging out with those actors. We were on the Warner Brothers jet going down to Vegas to shoot there. I mean, it was like, um, you know, like the entourage depiction of the Hollywood screenwriter's life. And it was like, you know, the the sort of the uh, high point chapter in that regard for us. But beyond that, we were working with Matt Damon, who we loved, who's a great actor, George Clooney, who's an incredible actor and filmmaker, Brad Pitt, all these guys, Casey Affleck, Scotty Kahn. And Steven Soderbergh, who was one of our heroes, just creatively, what he'd done in the business, the movies he made, he's he's the best. So we could absolutely go wherever we wanted in the script without the fear that people wouldn't understand it or they wouldn't get it. I mean, we just had carte blanche to be sort of like as out as we could get. So all that stuff together makes it the best experience you could ever have. We And fortunately, we were old enough and experienced enough at the time to know how good we had it. And we didn't take it for granted. We loved every minute of it. Um, but, you know, that was a pretty golden chapter for us. And that was only really a few years after you were, as you say, toiling in obscurity. It was. It was like, yeah, five or six years later, we'd made, I think, three, maybe four movies. Um, we directed our first movie. Which movie was that? That was called Knock Around Guys. Okay, I don't that think we'd I written saw the script for. Yeah, it's with um, John Malkovich, Barry Pepper, Vin Diesel, Dennis Hopper. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about the sons of of wise guys trying to like find their own path in the shadows of their dads, and, and they end up. And you uh, wrote that one as well. Yeah, we wrote that one as well. Oh, and actually, you know, Solitary Man, the one you mentioned, Brian wrote that one on his own, mm-hmm. and we directed that one together. That was just that was to a great be on movie. the record. Yeah, thanks, man. But uh, you know, going back to your to your sort of original premise for this. All this amazing stuff started happening after Rounders for me and for Brian and I in the movie business. And I realized that like five or six years had gone by and I hadn't written any fiction. And so in a way, the good fortune and success I was having in the movie business was was sort of killing the other half of my ambition and dream, which was to write novels. I wonder if like five years is kind of uh, – or five, six years – you know, everybody thinks they're going to be in the same career for their their whole lives. Like they have like yeah. one passion and purpose in life, and then they're going to do that for fifty years. But maybe like five, six years is the normal lifespan of a passion of an interest. Well, it could be. I mean, I still that that is my main career, and it's gone on for like over fifteen years now. But I'm you've done lots say. of different things. But now, yeah, but since then you've written six novels or five no- more novels, and you've done television. You're doing television next. Uh, you haven't done a movie since. 2009, right? Uh, yeah, that was the last feature we did. Mm-hmm. We did um, 
we did this 30 for 30 that we directed on Jimmy Connors mm-hmm. for ESPN. So that was an hour long documentary. But yeah, the last feature we did. And, oh, no. And actually, that was the last one we directed. We wrote the script for this movie called uh, Runner Runner that came out in 2013. Hmm. But uh, it, it wasn't uh, actually representative of our highest hopes for that one. Um, it was set in the world of online gaming and, and the big poker sites that got shut down and reopened overseas and everything. Hmm. Um, it's like John uh, Ben Mesrick uh, wrote a book uh, similar to that. He, he followed... I forgot who he followed, like Full Tilt Poker or one of those sites. He wrote kind of a- Yeah, I think he did write, uh, he excavated that subject. Ours is a fictional take on that and it's got some thriller aspect. Again, like I can't say that it came out uh, to the highest sort of execution as mm-hmm. we'd hoped. But, uh, but you know, as you know, you're probably right. When you're, when you're doing something creative, you have to find different ways to stay fresh. You got to do different things. I mean, I guess that happens to you in business. You change gears a lot in all the stuff you do. Um, but at some point along the way, I realized that I'd been spending like so much of my time, all my time and energy on these movies. And I loved it and it was great, but I wasn't able to devote any time to writing these books. And around the same time, um, my wife and I, we moved out of the city and I started to be a guy who commuted. And I, for a long time I was driving and it was drudgery. You know, you're stuck in traffic. I started listening to books on tape. I felt like I was wasting like an hour and a half of my life every day, two hours a day. Um, we lived up in Connecticut. So then I realized, um, you know, I should start taking the train, even though I didn't live near the train, started taking the train. And I started seeing all these people like sort of around me, like either reading the New York post or passed out. Everybody's head was lolling back. And I was like, you know, how long am I going to do this before that's me? And I'm just like conked out and I'm just like sleeping away these hours of my day, not getting any closer. How am I going to find the time to do what I want to do? And and it's so funny you're saying that because doing what you want to do. And here's after you've done Rounders, Ocean's 13, Solitary Man, you know, all these, you're working on TV shows, uh, but there's always something yeah. I think there's always dissatisfaction. Yeah, that was the extent. irony. I was going to do the thing that I want, always wanted to do. And I had the best day job in the world. I was yeah, actually still dissatisfied. To, and I still <laughs> felt like I, I, there's more that I need to do. Mm-hmm. So um, around that time, I, I re-listened to Tony Robbins' Personal Power. I'd listened to it before and I'd done his book and it was amazing. The results were just, you know, explosively um, positive. So I re-listened to that. And I started to tr- realize that I could figure out how to use small chunks of my time. And I think I was talking to my shrink at the time too. And he was like, why don't you try riding on the train? And I did said, you, I, can't, you, I said, I can't even get a seat on the train. I'm standing on it most of the time. He goes, you got to find the train that originates in your station. You can't just get on any other train, any old train. So I did, I looked at the schedule, the big schedule. And I was like, oh, this one starts here, even though it's like not at the exact time. And I would get there and I could get a seat. And I was like, okay, it's a 45 minute ride. What can I do? And I started to write City of the Sun on the train. And, you know, I don't know if you noticed, but like the chapters are pretty short. Yeah. And I think the form was following the function there because, you know, in a way I couldn't write these long 20 page chapters because I'd always be in the middle when the train ride ended. So I think that it was coming in these bites. But you know, I think that form works really well, particularly for, well, I think it works in any genre, but for kind of a thriller genre, you can have a cliffhanger every couple of pages. Yeah, I, I, exactly. As opposed to kind of like really, you know, drawing out people's stories that, you know, again, for, for a thriller has to be fast paced. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you asked like, um, you know, I'd written these couple of literary, more literary type novels that had been published first. And then, you know, I'd had this idea of the the story of City of the Sun for a long time. I didn't know if I wanted to make a movie out of it or exactly what I wanted to do. But But I don't think it's a coincidence that it happened, that that was the one I chose. You know, I didn't choose to write a languid literary novel on the train with, you know, huge prose chunks that I was never going to get to the end of by the time I got to this to Grand Central. And and so, okay, so so there was, basically there was some dissatisfaction. Uh, then you sort of um, 
uh, were grappling with, well, how can I make more? You, you, you saw fear all around you. People were reading the New York Post or passed out. You didn't want this to be you. So you, I think was, I saw acquiescence. Yeah. yeah and like, that, that made me afraid. Yeah. And so, but, but then your first, uh, you, your first emotion was resistance. Like, I can't do this. I can't even get a seat on the train. So you actually had yeah. to kind of figure out this strategy of uh, having time on the train. But then you, then you put it to use. Then you wrote every single day. Was it a discipline, like every single day on the train? I would just get on the train and, and, you know, I would flip open my laptop or my notebook, depending on like whatever mood I was in. And I would just try to like nudge the ball forward. Like, would, you, would you try to finish one chapter every day? Um, I would just try to finish like a scene maybe. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a scene would be a chapter or sometimes, sometimes I wouldn't, you know, well, sometimes I would write like five great pages and everybody would have gotten off the train around me and they'd be ready to close the doors in Grand Central. And other times I'd be like, writing, rewriting two bad sentences and just wishing that we were there and it was over. Hmm. You know, 40 minutes seemed like way too short sometimes and it seemed like an eternity other times. So so, so, so sometimes you felt, uh, it wasn't like you, you set, a, set a goal for yourself a thousand words a day or anything. You were like, sometimes it would be just refat. No, I never, I never did something that mathematical. To mm-hmm. me, that would be crippling. Hmm. I mean, a thousand words a day. I know there's some brilliant writers that did that and they would, they would definitely do it and they would get up at the end of it. And even guys would finish a book and if they hadn't satisfied their word count, would start the next book hmm. that day. Some brilliant writers, I can't remember exactly who, like not Thomas Wolfe, but somebody of that era. Um, but to me, the word count thing would be crippling. I just, I tried to make it a little more forgiving and I try, you know, I'd explored a lot of techniques to being creatively unblocked and- Like and, what? Um, one was- uh, was uh, writing these morning pages, you know, the Julia Cameron yeah. book, the, but the so artist way. So, so, so morning pages were a thing that I'd done um, at various times when I'd gotten stuck in screenwriting. <clears throat> um, you know, you just sit down and you write three pages in a journal and you don't censor yourself. You don't stop the pen. It doesn't even have to make sense. You don't reread it. It's not finished work. It's just something you do to like move a pen across a page and it, it's supposed to unblock you and it does. So I'd seen that happen and I'd seen other writers like Stephen King and Lawrence Block had written these great books on on the writing craft. And, you know, they do this math where they're like, you know, if you can write a paragraph, if you can write a half a page, if you can write a page, at the end of the year, you're going to have written the good part of a book. And I just tried to put my faith in that. And I tried to be as regular as I could thinking, you know, if I have a few hundred pages, I can I can turn it into something. And little by little, you know, it just takes faith and will. And and I stuck with it and and I got to the the end of this thing. And, you know, I didn't write every minute, every word of it on the train. There were times when I would have a free day for whatever reason. I would go to the library in my town and I would sit there for like six hours and try to really cover ground. But by and large, the, the practice that kept me going was doing it on my commute. You know, and, it, and it's interesting because – so, so I want to talk about the the structure of this book. Was this your best selling novel? Uh, yeah, it's the best selling one to date for sure. So, so best selling novel, most of it written on a train. After this extreme point of like something had was had to change, something had to burst. Yeah. And uh, uh, so, so what's interesting is you begin the novel, and I'm not going to do any spoilers, but uh, you begin the novel with the most intense scenes imaginable basically the, the the worst fear of a parent imaginable yeah. happens in your in chapter one i mean it's about a child in jeopardy the book and and what you're gonna think i'm twisted but the other factor that came into play that made me write the book was i'd had the idea for 10 years and i never grappled with it and then when i had my first son <laughs> it, it broke something in me and i had to write it Somehow the reality of having um, a baby that I love so much made the story real. So me. that came before you decided you were going to write a thriller. You basically said you took this well, – you know, having a son and having a child is an intensely moving thing. It could yeah. go in any direction. It could sure. be a literary direction or it could be a thriller direction. You chose the thriller direction. Well, my, it, it was um, – a couple of things were happening. It was like I have to write this book. In my life, my life has changed. I have this child. I have this story that's very harrowing about a child that somehow I've never been able to wrap my arms around, but I've never been able to walk away from it. And something about being a father made me understand the father character in the book, who's like sort of the the second 
main character in the book with the private investigator, and it opened it up to me. And the private investigator himself had lost a child. Yes. So, or should I have said that? Uh, is that too much of a spoiler? No, that's okay. I mean, that's his, you know. But he has, his... he has an arc through, the, through all of your books. Yeah, I mean, that's not, played, that's not played for real suspense. I mean, I think at first, you know this guy's damaged. You're not sure exactly why this case that lands on his lap is sort of so threatening to him. Mm-hmm. And then that gets unpacked through the course of the first book. Yeah. So, it, you know, what was interesting to me, and I'm just, I'm trying to figure out as I read the book, uh, what was technique and what was kind of thought of on the fly. But uh, if you don't mind me saying, I'm not, not going to say any spoilers, but I'm going to kind of get into the book a little bit structurally. Sure. So there's a bad guy right away. And or yeah. you sort of you sort of see the bad guys, the initial bad guys in the first chapter, or the second chapter and so on. Mm-hmm. But you sort of realize that there's more bad guys and more bad guys and more bad guys as you go through, you know, they, the, the, the dad and the private investigator are trying to solve this crime and trying to find this guy's kid. And instead of there being a twist, I think I think that what was interesting to me was the twist was that whoever you thought was the bad guy, there was usually somebody behind him. And somebody even, worse, actually. Somebody yeah. worse, yeah. And so there wasn't like a classic twist that you normally think of uh, in, in a lot of these novels. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. For some, you know, it I'm wasn't like a, the dad did it. I'm not a huge fan of those. For uh-huh. some reason, those too gimmick, too gimmicky those or? twists, they knock me out of the, of the spell hmm. because I want to feel like I'm living in an alternate reality that like I can understand. And then, yeah, when it turns out that the dad did it and he hired the private investigator to cover his tracks or something because he thought it would never lead back. Like that to me, it's hard to have the real emotional content in the book while all those tricks are being played. Um, you know, once in a while, those things work, I guess. And yeah, you know, I'm they're very popular. Of, I'm not sort of like, um, yeah, I'm thinking of like presumed innocent, the movie. You remember that? Like yeah. the, the wife. Does oh, by it, the right? way, um, Scott Turow, classic person that I modeled my thing off of because he wrote that, I think on the bus in Chicago commuting to work. Oh, I didn't know that. To be a lawyer. You know, he was a lawyer and I guess he felt like trapped in his lawyer job and he would take like a long bus ride or something through Metro Chicago and he'd be scribbling on legal pads. And, and, I, guess, and I always thought like, well, how the hell did he do that? You know? And- and then, you know, however many years later, I was slowly found my way to doing something similar. I guess John Grisham also was uh, he was a lawyer and a state legislator when yes. he was writing the the not the firm, but his first novel, which was published, uh, I think it was a time to kill or his first bu- a time no- to kill. Yeah, it wasn't a successful book. No, only sold like a couple thousand copies yes. before the firm. And then it went on to sell millions of copies. But uh yeah. Uh, he kind of just did that in his spare time. He did, you know. And, and um, you've worked with John Grisham on you, – you were turning The Street Lawyer into a TV series. Yeah, well, the first the first way we came into contact with him was the movie studios had been trying to make Runaway Jury for a mm-hmm. long time. And they developed a bunch of scripts that John had always vetoed. He didn't like them. He thought they diverted too far from his book. And we got hired to do one pass on that project and we wrote a script that got greenlit and that he approved. And so we came into his world. And when he came to New York, we met him. And his his literary agent is a guy who lives in New York. And he actually became my lit agent, the guy who sold City of the Sun, coincidentally. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, we got to know him. And then later he wanted to do a TV version of The Street Lawyer. And we made a pilot for ABC. In the end, it didn't get picked up and they they tried to remake it later. Uh, that's a good idea, though. Like the Street Lawyer is uh, w- one of one of his novels that could have legs and do. Yeah, it do really them. set up well. Um, the feeling was that it was too liberal. The idea that this guy would uh. leave corporate law and then help indigent people. Huh. Um, we thought they were wrong, but you know they made the decision. And you know, a lot of people will kind of put down John Grisham as like being too genre, and yet if you read. There's a there's a there's a really nice authenticity in all of his novels. Like he's really kind of expressing his kind of p- political and ethical views in in his novels, as opposed to I think a lot of just basic genre fiction. Yeah, and I mean he he's a really sturdy storyteller. I mean he knows exactly how to do it. I mean he sets it up so well, and 
I don't think that his twists fall into that category of being like completely outlandish. No, like in he the manages fir- to ground them, and yet they're surprising. In in the firm, you kind of know right away the law firm's bad and the lawyer's good, right? You know, and you just don't know Mitch. how it's going to unfold. Yeah. yeah, you're like you know you can't see all the twists and turns coming, but he doesn't. You know those big rug pulls just oftentimes feel cheap. Yeah, so so it's interesting. You put it in a good way. You don't know how it's going to unfold. Like with your book, you don't know how it's going to unfold. You don't know who's the last layer of right. behind, who's behind all of this, and you want to find out. And so so it's more this desire of wanting to find out how it unfolds as opposed to trying to figure out a puzzle. You know, it's not like a Sherlock Holmes puzzle. It was just, right. I, I like the way of putting it. You're waiting for something to unfold. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, the two guys, the investigator and the father, like as they pursue it, things change in them and like sort of this, this case, which is this hopeless cause in a way, becomes the thing that helps them to resolve their issues in a way and their friendship grows. All that stuff was, you know, part of the driver for me to do the book. It's definitely a buddy movie. (laughs) Yeah, you know, yeah, between yeah. the investigator and and the dad, mm-hmm. um, you know, the other thing is too, and I wonder again about technique versus, um, you know, you just writing this, but you did give each bad guy enough of a backstory <laughs> that there's almost sympathy. Now, obviously, they're doing the most hor- horrific thing of all, but uh, but you you do give. You know, like like one character's dying and he thinks to himself, I could have been a better person. Right. Like it, even one line of backstory, you wonder then why he thinks that. But uh, you, you don't you don't make everybody 100 percent bad. You know, you give them like maybe a half a percent. Well, where they yeah. could be good. I mean, I tried to humanize him in that book for sure, because, you know, maybe that was some reaction when you're doing movies to to round out a character who is a villain or sort of like a second tier villain takes screen time and you really often don't have it. Um, a movie has to be on rails story wise often and you don't have time for those digressions. But in a book, when you're when you're going to various multiple points of view and you're inside a character's head, they can think whatever you want them to and say. Right. And so you know maybe they're unreliable narrators or. They're trying to make excuses for themselves, but like I don't think anybody just says to themselves, "Well, I'm the villain in this story." Everybody's the hero in their own story, or certainly the central character, flawed though they may be. So I just thought it'd be interesting to try to make them more rounded out and understandable. And then when you get to the point where you see them clearly, you realize they're sort of monstrous. They're even more monstrous. And, and, you know, you made it, uh, I don't know if you made, again, this decision consciously or how you thought about it, but, you know, a lot of literary fictions in the, let's say it's in the first person or, um, or it's third person, but focused on one character's viewpoint. Um, you kind of took this omniscient, uh, person view. Omniscient third person. Yeah. yeah. So was that a conscious decision? Like, did you have to decide, I'm not going to just do this in the point of view of the dad or, uh, or, yeah, or is mean, that a, is that a genre, um, uh, thing that's more common in like thrillers or cause you have to see the bad guys and the good guys. I mean, I think that that's, it's pretty well used in, in thrillers and fiction in general. I think, you know, there's a lot of, there are a lot of thrillers that are first person also. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was a, ch- the, the challenge that the thing that I wanted to achieve was writing these third person sort of omniscient points of view, but with the feeling of complete first person but not in first person. Cause to me, that's sort of the highest execution where you feel like you're inside the person's head and they're saying, they're almost saying, I, me, this, you know, this is my, like living their own life experience, but you're not writing it with those. Yeah. It's a challenge pronouns. because if you're seeing in everybody's mind at the same time, potentially the story could unravel too fast. Yeah. I mean, you know, I might've used a couple, few too many uh, points of view in that book. Because no. in the subsequent books, I, I used multiple perspectives and I, I cut them down a little. But you look, look at – compare it to like let's say uh, Mario Puzo's The Godfather where he also was uh, omniscient third person. But he'll go like 60 pages down, you know, different characters' viewpoints. Yeah. And then, then they'll never appear again for the rest. <laughs> they were obscure characters. He'll go 60 pages into them and then pull back and back into the story. So that – you know – that's a case where it was also to some extent a thriller, but he went way off off the rails. Well, you know, this was, that was my first crime novel and 
I think a lot of guys that are super successful crime writers are credited with having complete control over their genre and what they're doing. But, uh, and maybe that is the case. For me, I was trying to explore an artistic thing. I mean, even though it's a very sort of recognizable format and genre, um, you know, you're trying to make these characters talk and you're trying to do something artistic. And when they get going, there's no, there's no rule that says you have to stop them or as long as it's interesting, you can keep it going because there's no meter that a book goes by. Movies have to be over basically in two hours and you have this feeling often that if they really wildly diverge from standard pacing, that something's dragging. But in a book, you know, a thriller could be 200 pages or 800 pages. But you do kind of have to have uh, lots of cliffhangers. You kind of have to keep the pacing going. Yeah. Otherwise, you lose yeah. the interest of the reader. Sure. And so, so you what? Have to find the balance. Like, did you, um, I mean, what did you do to make sure that the pacing was right in terms of keeping the, the, the thrill going? Like, did you sort of read chapters out loud as you were going? Or did you have your wife or Brian or whoever read to, to make sure that they were still engaged uh, along the way? I would, um, I mean, just it, it's an instinctive thing, though I would say you write more than ends up there. And when you reread it with enough objectivity, you know, if I finish the first section, move on, go back to the first section after a couple of weeks, I can see where it starts to lag and I cut. I guess also you ha at this point you have the discipline of the movie writing behind you. So you knew, uh, you know, you probably had a big sense of when something was going to start dragging or being boring. Yeah. I mean, even though I didn't have a book deal and it had mm -hmm. been many years since I'd written a novel, I was a professional writer by that point. I mean, that's what I did for a living all day long. So- mm -hmm. I did have a lot of technique. Not all of it carries over. Obviously, they're different. They're different mediums, but some of it does. And and you know, I just tried to gauge what was the most interesting alchemy between what these characters were doing and the story I was telling. And I hoped, uh, you know, sometimes things get boring when they move too quickly because there's not requisite detail to mm. make it rich. Mm. So then it becomes too stripped down, and then that's not interesting. And sometimes it's like overloaded and you're like, this needs to move faster. You know, Brian read, I think Brian read it first when I was finished. He always reads whatever, the stuff I write on my own when I'm done, he's always the first reader. And uh, what was his first response? His first, I remember I handed him the manuscript, I printed it and I said, you know, I finished this, can you read it? And I told him about the idea and we talked about it a lot. And he didn't know that I was working on that particular idea. And he read the first like couple of lines and he goes, Oh my God. No, you didn't. I can't believe it. His kid was only like maybe six or seven at that point. So we had a, a young kid and he was horrified because, you know, he's a little squeamish and the book is, it's fairly dark, you know? And it gets, it gets dark immediately, like by page yeah. two. Yes. <laughs> so there's not a lot of lag time. I mean, I like, I like a, a strong opening. I mean, I do think that that's, if you're writing a crime book, you may as well have the access crime right away. Those yeah. Do something exciting in the beginning. And then, he read it really quickly and he was like, you have something really good here. Like this is going to sell, et cetera. Like he knew. Yeah. Like I met you guys at like, I don't know, two in the afternoon or maybe a little earlier that day. And then I bought the book. Uh, and then I, I read it later that night. Oh, it was a Thursday. I read, I started reading it like around four o'clock then I went to sleep, woke up at midnight and read it and finished it by five in the morning. That's the next awesome. Day. I mean, that's why you're awesome. <laughs> so it was, what an enthusiast. That's it, great. It was a great thriller. Thank so, you. So, and, and now, um, you're, you, you, ha what, what's the book coming out now? It's, a, it's kind of the fourth book or in this series. It's the fourth one in the series. It's, it's this character, Frank Bear, this private investigator. And, um, it's called Signature Kill. And he ends up on the trail of what would commonly be known as, um, a serial killer. Um, and, and why do you say commonly known? <laughs> because, you know, as, as he starts off, um, he starts off looking for a girl who's missing a young woman who's missing, um, and realizes that it may intersect with something bigger. Um, but as he learns about what's going on, he ends up with some experts who make some distinctions between the terminology serial killer and signature killer, which is just mm -hmm. a slightly different, slightly different classification. 
And have you, have you thought about turning these into movies at all? I mean, so so hundred thousand copies is is good on on the first one of these. Um, was it? Does that make it? Was it a New York Times bestseller or? I don't know. I you know I I don't. It's been on some list. I don't know if it was on the the New York Times list. How did it the sell? Paperback so many might have. Um, you know, they just got it out there, and the the story of a writer who was a a filmmaker who then wrote a novel was something that magazines and websites and stuff, people were interested in that story. And I think it got a lot of eyeballs. Um, but apparently something I've learned is I don't write them fast enough because the real franchise crime writers have this amazing ability to turn one out every year, one book out every year, and they keep the quality up. Hmm. And the readers come to sort of like lean on that. They know what time of year it's going to come out. They expect it. It's like their next episode. You know, the guys like um, Lee Child who writes the Reacher books and, you know, they're amazingly prolific. Um, at first, I thought that that could never be me. N- now I actually know that that might – I might have a chance at doing that except I've also made, I would say, um, a half a dozen movies since I started my series. And it's very hard when you're going into production, in production, and post-production to – to stay with it. It's, you know, my books take me like a year and a half, maybe two before they come out. And that's, that's really, you know, not fast enough in a way. Um, but, but that said, there, there's likely going to be something like in the episodic space with this character. Hmm. Um, and so after the book was finished, how long did it take before someone agreed to publish it? It, it happened pretty quickly that time because, as I said, I knew this guy, David Gernard, who was Grisham's, um, Grisham's agent. So I knew the right guy this time. I knew exactly the right guy. And we'd become friends through the making of these Grisham projects. So I called him and I said, you know, I wrote this crime book. Would you give it a read? And he said, I will. But on the agreement that if I am going to pass on it, we still stay friends and it doesn't affect anything. And I said, okay, deal. And he called me back like a week later and he was like, I think you did a fantastic job. This is great. You know, I'm totally relieved. <laughs> I think you're a pro and I'm going to go try to sell this. It's so funny. So after working with you and after you had done like, I don't know, 10 movies or whatever, he still needed to know that you were a pro because <laughs> yeah. I guess it's a different, it's just a little it's bit. It's a little different. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you know, it's funny because I've written, so, you know, I feel like your story parallels mine in a, in, in a little respect. When I was um, – we're, we're similar age and when I had uh, just left graduate school, I started writing nonstop fiction. So I wrote like four novels but all unpublished. It was, I was too young. It was all right. garbage basically. And then I started working at HBO figuring, OK, this is how I'll get – contacts uh in the in the entertainment industry right. very then, logical yeah I, sh- I shot a pilot for them uh i did all sorts of work for them and but then i got you know the internet got big and i was a technical guy so it was just natural for me to get into the internet business and right. that sort of made me veer off until more the past few years i've been writing more nonfiction. yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh but as as you guys have pointed out to me too, nonfiction, even if you write good nonfiction, is very different from writing good fiction. No one knows. Like, I still don't know if I could write good fiction, but it, your story inspires me because I want to give it a try. Like, it's, it's well, an interesting thing. You have a big audience, so that's, that's what companies want. If you were looking to go the standard route, you could self-publish, though. Yeah, that's that's what I would do is self-publish yeah. because I do have you have uh, direct access to your audience, and that's incredibly valuable. I mean, a lot of people I know who are fiction writers now, like Hugh Howey with his science fiction novel Wool, and he's been on my podcast. Teresa Reagan, who's in the um, thriller space, she sells like hundreds of thousands of copies of her books. So, so self-publishing has worked very well for them. And they didn't really have a social media platform; like they would just. I think the key for them is they wrote lots of books. So if you're going to write like 10 books quickly and and one of them catches fire, it's almost like a venture capitalist model where you only need like one success right. and then that makes your whole portfolio work well. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I admire people that can churn out that many books. Yeah. Well, uh, like Wool, Hugh Howey's book started off as like a 68-page novella and then he was on to his next book. 
But that book uh, had a lot of fans all of a sudden. So he wrote Wall 1, Wall 2, Wall 3, Wall 4 really quickly. Mm-hmm. And then he wrote the Wall Omnibus, which was all of them together. And sure. so he had like, the, he was numbers one through five on Amazon's science fiction bestseller list. That's incredible. Yeah. I mean, I don't know um, the difference in his sales between his like Kindle versus versus his hard books. But uh, the the sort of scalable pricing that comes with the digital formats totally it, it just completely skews to people you can write you know it's almost like um graphic novels or something where you can yeah. write episodes and editions and just put them out quickly and sell them for much less you know when you write a traditional thriller that a that a standing book company is going to publish and sell for like 30 bucks that's like a big commitment that a reader has to make that's a relationship thing they have to spend a lot of money and it's going to take them a long time to read it so it has to be really good, but there's something to really be said for like chapters or episodes. Yeah, or, interesting. Yeah. So, so one one final thing I want to ask: when you you've got you've done movies, you've done um, fiction, you've done TV. It seems to me that in the past decade, uh, TV has dramatically changed. Obviously, there's you know you, you the the arcs on shows of, of like Mad Men or Breaking Bad or Lost. There, there's arcs across the entire series, not just episodes, not just seasons, but the entire series. And and you build up yeah. this huge emotional intensity and relationships with the main characters that never existed before. Like happy days when we were kids, <laughs> you know, there was maybe an arc for the, the episode, tiny arcs for the seasons, but that's it. Like when Richie Cunningham was stopped being on the show, like nobody even noticed basically. Right. So, so, uh, do you find it a much bigger challenge? Like you artistically to write for TV? Well, I, I don't, uh, I would say that it just seems like a huge opportunity right now because when you write a movie in, in let's even talk about an indie movie where you're going to get some financing and have like a lot of freedom. Um, you're going to pour your guts into it and work on this thing and try to make it incredible, but it's, the story is going to be 90 minutes or an hour and 20 minutes or whatever. And it's going to have a beginning, middle and an end, and it's going to have resolution and that's it. I mean, that is a closed universe in a way. There could be sequels or whatever, but it's the full ride. These shows that have these amazing shows that are happening now on premium cable, where there's like seven or ten or twelve episodes in a season, managed to have an incredibly compelling closed-ended A story, like something that opens in the beginning and ends by the end of the episode that gives you that full satisfaction that you've felt a whole story. Yet they have these hanging serialized elements in the characters' lives and, and their character development. And it makes such an incredible combination. I mean, whether it's The Wire or Breaking Bad or even like The Shield, um, you know, there's something so addictive about it. True Detective was another one last year. There's something so addictive. So the... The opportunity I'm I'm doing one now with Brian and and um, Andrew Ross Sorkin, our other partner. We're doing something um, set in the world of finance called Billions for Showtime, and it's about a hedge fund guy um, crossing swords with a U.S. attorney. And we just feel incredibly privileged to have the opportunity to like build out these characters, take on a sort of complex um, subject in this space that allows us the potential to have dozens and dozens of hours to build out our stories and characters. Right. So have you already thought out, like, if this lasts for like five seasons, what, how do you keep the arc going? Have you thought out like these, you know, extra large arcs? Yeah. I mean, listen, you, we're not, we weren't in a position where we could write all of the scripts for the five years because they, they are not prepared to commit to that. So right. to do that all on the come would be an insane gesture, but you sketch out where it could go and you, you have to know for yourself first and then they have to know that you can make this thing grow. For, and this is new in TV. Like this wasn't the case, let's say 15 years ago with TV. There were no shows that no, had No, I mean, I'm not like one of these like um, media experts who can talk about like the uh, movements or whatever, but they, I guess they call it like um, the the third golden age of TV where the first one was like, you know, when TV became popular and the second one was when, I don't know, ER was popular. And now- it's like since the wire through now, these high-end premium cable dramas with flawed characters like Don Drapers and stuff yeah. like that 
who audience is hooked into. All, all of them have flawed characters. Breaking Bad, The Sopranos, uh, you know, yeah, Mad I mean, Men. That's the world we live in, right? I mean, that's, I guess, what's most reflective of who we all are. So I think that's why people are gravitating towards that. Yeah. Well, um, so so Billions is the TV project you're working on. Yep. And um, the the name of the book that's uh, about to come out is- Signature Kill. Signature Kill. And uh, how are you going to um, market that book? Are you going to do a book tour? <laughs> oh, my God. That's they, a great question. I really, do they even do that anymore? Like, do those work? I, I think I went on the last book tour. Uh-huh. Um, I think they, they hopefully shut them down as a concept. That's got to be the hard. Last one, um, the third book in my series came out about a year and a half ago. And I went on a, a little tour. It was called $13 Million Pop. And it was with the Frank Bear character. And I went at the end of the summer to a bunch of towns and flew all over the place. And, um, you know, there were just very, very few people in the bookstores. Mm. Now, listen, I think a guy like John Grisham could go and play to a packed house. But, you know, the way the world works now, um, I'm not sure that those brick and mortar stores and doing live events is where it's at. So, um, you know, doing podcasts, talking to great people like you. I think that's the best way for, yeah. for writers to be heard now. I mean, hopefully. I think you, you look at like what Tony Robbins did for his his book Money. He basically did this huge podcast tour. I think that's a great way to launch a book or a blog tour, uh, things like that. You know, and creating, creating the story outside the story of the book. So yeah. for instance, you mentioned with City of the Sun, your, the first book in this series, part of the story was not about the book, but about this filmmaker writing novels. So I think that's an excellent way to to market a book. Yeah, I mean the Tony thing is fascinating cuz he obviously had a huge built-in audience, but um you know, he's the last person to take that for granted. He went out there and he did a string of podcasts and was fascinating on every one of them. Yeah. And you know, he had to have reached just tons of people who'd never heard him before. And uh, you know, obviously his book's number 1 instantly. Yeah. So well, uh, David, thanks so much for, for coming Thank on my you, podcast. Man. I know you're like super busy. And um, again, I think it's really just inspirational how you found the time to, to write that first book, make this dream come true for yourself. And uh, uh, I hope this, this next one's a success and, and Billions is a success. Thank you, man. Really so, appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.